Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Say, we'd like to get started. I talk to you, and you talk to me. Who are you talking to at this hour? Mr. Bradley, you better start talking. Let's start the talking. I could talk all night. My mind is J-talking. Midnight, conversing until the light. All we need is information. Now we got ourselves communication. J. Jay talking WBZ. Excellence 109. Let's continue with Anthony Samarco. How you doing, Anthony? I'm well. How are you? You ho- you're holding up all right? I am. Okay. We're focusing on Milton. We're flexible, but Milton is where we start. And Anthony has a number of books on Milton. One of them you have here, but you have some others. Can you run through them? Well, Milton Compendium is something that was actually a grouping of articles that I wrote for the Milton Times for about 15 years. And it's not all of them, but it actually covers the breadth of Milton from artists and architects and history and uh, various things about the neighborhoods, businesses, and it was really quite fun. There's also Milton, which was done by uh, Arcadia Publishing, part of their Images of America series, and then also Milton Then and Now. So between the Milton architecture, Milton compendium, and then of course Milton, and then Milton then and now, these four books kind of chronicle all of my research over a 15-year period of the town. Let's go to Jim and Hingham. Jim, how do you do? Say hi to Anthony Samarco. Hey, Anthony, how you doing? I'm well, how are you? Good. It's nice to listen to somebody that's pretty much a walking, talking uh, history book. <laughs> oh, gee, thank you. <laughs> pretty amazing. So a couple, you had mentioned... Uh, I forget who had mentioned about having pictures of the ice cutting. And just because I'm a little bit interested, I work in that area, Jamaica, like the Jamaica Pond and all that. There's yes. a Jamaica Plain Historic Society and the New England Historic Society has some pretty cool pictures yes. on them cutting the ice and the horses and how they cut it all out. And um, But I'd like to thank, I, I think it was Frederick Tudor that you mentioned about bringing the ice to Correct. India. yes. And I think he brought it first down the like the Caribbean, San Martinique or something. And I think that's where we get like the rum runners and some of the cool tropical drinks. They never <laughs> had them. <laughs> I I would hope so, but I think one of the things was I think the ice itself was something that did not only ice drinks, but it also iced water. The funny thing was Frederick Tudor was somebody who revolutionized how we basically drink. Now when I'm in Europe, if I ask for ice, I get a piece, maybe two. But in this instance in Boston, I mean, I will have an entire glass of ice when I have even my cocktail at five o'clock. I think sometimes Frederick Tudor himself did try in different ways, not only to harvest it, and he did fresh pond primarily in Cambridge, 
But the idea was he would actually store it over the winter. And, you know, how do you do it in such a way that it doesn't melt in May and June? Well, he tried everything imaginable, rolling it in sawdust, rolling it in hay, and then, of course, keeping it in an insulated building with hay and straw between the wood and, of course, the inner boards. But he himself did actually go to the Caribbean. He went to the West Indies, and he eventually made his fortune by bringing ice to India. So I think sometimes you're right. But there are wonderful photographs of the early 20th century, but ice harvesting was something that really was of the 19th century. Think about what a a strange thing. Ice must have been for many of the people in India. What is this? Exactly. Frozen water. But I think sometimes my grandfather would actually call the refrigerator an ice box. Oh, yeah. Now, he was born in 1879. I mean, he was much older than when my mother was born and my parents were older when I was born. But he would call it an ice box because... We still had it in the basement, but it was a place a piece of ice was put into a zinc-lined area to keep something cold. So I always remember yeah. Frederick Tudor and the story. Yeah, and didn't he, like, help, I don't know if it was Cuba or something, he had some big things with making ice cream and teaching them how to make things that obviously they wouldn't be able to make without, you know, him bringing down the ice. Well, I don't think it was he, but I, I do realize in some well, ways that ice was in, integral in that. But the surprising yeah. thing is I'm writing a book right now on S.S. Pearson Company, and the funny thing is Tudor's great-granddaughter, who was a woman named Tasha Tudor, did these wonderful cookbooks and Corgiville books. She had corgis. And she actually does this wonderful reminiscence about S.S. Pierce with men that actually dressed in livery that would greet you at the door. So in a lot of ways, the Tudors were, again, not just ice kings, but in the 19th century, they invested their money in real estate, and the Tudor, which is on Beacon Hill, was built on their estate. Ice, the ice king. I have one, one uh, I hope, Milton-related question. Sure. Was the, uh, was the Baker Chocolate Factory, was that technically in part of Milton, or is that all Dorchester? No, it's technically on both. Um, not only on the Dorchester side, but it was also on the Milton side. But, you know, you had to realize in the 19th century, Baker's was not the only chocolate manufacturer. There was Preston's chocolate, there was Ware's chocolate, and there was Webb and Twombly chocolate. Webb and Twombly was always on the Milton side. Henry Pierce, who owned Baker's chocolate from 1854 until 1896, bought out the former competitors, and he would actually rename the new mills after his former competitors. So the uh, Ware Mill was in Milton and the Webb and Twombly Mills were in Milton, but the others were all in Dorchester. Thanks. Right, Thank I, you, Jim. I, oh. We actually got a bad connection there. Let's, you know, Vincent's been on hold a long time, so we'll squeeze him in before the break. Hello, Vincent. Hello. Hi. Say hi to Anthony. Hi. Uh, good, another great program, guys. Thank uh, you. Oh, yeah, I had a question on uh, Perkins' family. Was that the same family that owned the uh, back in the 60s? You, you may remember, Anthony, the Perkins tobacco shops? No, no relation whatsoever. But the Perkins is yeah. the tobacco shop. I think you're talking about Perkins in South Boston. Right. Yes. No, that was no relation. That Perkins was named after Michael Perkins, who was someone who lost his life in World War One in South Boston. And they named it Perkins Square in his memory. 
And that tobacco shop, the Perkins itself, took its name from that square. Right. These Perkinses all were primarily related to Thomas Handicide Perkins, who was the merchant prince of Boston. He was the man who made tremendous money in the China trade. And his estate in Jamaica Plain, he also had an estate in Brookline. But this was that family. And they were primarily of the China trade. And, right. you know, they reinvested it in real estate primarily, but right. the idea was they were no relation to Perkins Tobacco. Thanks, Vincent. And anything Thank else? Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks. Good. You know, one of the things that we that I really realize about you, Anthony, is your knowledge of the families. We don't really speak about that, but your knowledge of the family trees and how they really crisscross throughout the tapestry that is it's, the history of Boston kind of kind of is a the framework upon which a lot of other stuff is it sounds it sounds very peculiar but i have a friend named edie and edie is a dear friend and one of the things is the joke in my family and friends was the fact that i have a hundred years of social registers under my desk and i can just pull out and give you the name and the information and i hate to tell you i look at them every day doing research i don't know why but there are things that we're all good in and one of the things about my aspects of history is I love Boston history and I love the aspect of not just the Brahmin aspect but I love it of the immigrant aspect and I try to make it something that is inclusive of all of us who we are it's our shared history wherever we've come from Anthony are you ready to talk to David in Milton by all means we're kind of focusing on Milton tonight David, Good hello. evening, Anthony. Good evening. Hi. Um, I live right across from the uh, Craig Estate uh, right here, and um, I've pretty much been living my whole life here. And I remember as a child, I used to go up um, with my friends and we'd feed the horses up at Craig's Field, uh, sugar cubes. Wow. And he also had a good-sized amount of other creatures, um, like uh, hogs. and um, I guess he had cows at one time as well. Um, do you happen to know uh, any history about the Craig estate or the Craig family? Is this off of Pleasant Street? Yes, it's right off Pleasant. Well, you know, recently, well, I shouldn't say recently. When I think 15 years, that's recent to me. But 15 years ago, they developed much of that land for new houses. And yes. I was astonished because one of my tutors, Olivia, who actually was at the Urban College of Boston, her partner was actually a Craig. And I would say, do you know that they're developing the old Craig estate? And she was like, yes, I heard. But, you know, the thing is, that was something that was not unusual, to have a large piece of land. Maybe the Craigs were not the Forbeses or the Eustaces, but they still had a large farm, and they did keep animals and livestock and everything of that sort. Yeah. But it in the 20s and 30s and 40s, Craig was just a wealthy landholder. And... After the family sold off the land, it would be developed for residential housing. But I liked it because at least they named the street after the family, so you can actually create that sense of continuity. But to actually remember in some ways horses in Milton is a really nice thing because in some ways, you know, I looked at it as something that many people did keep them. I mean, there was a man named Tony Guest, and Tony Guest lived in Milton, oh, in the 1990s when I moved to Milton, 
and he would actually come over the Blue Hill and visit. And his horse was beautiful. And I would think to myself, how many of us could keep a horse in Milton? But it was something that many people did. Yeah. Thank you, David. Well, thank you very much. Absolutely. Anthony, how did people get out to Milton? Was there ever public transportation? Of course, they, they took their horse and buggy, but was there ever public transportation out there? Well, there was both forms of transportation. In the 1850s, the Old Colony Railroad had been put through from Boston to the South Shore, and that was by Nathan Carruth. Carruth was an enterprising man, and eventually he created what was called the Dorchester and Milton Division of the Old Colony Railroad, and that is today what is called the surface trolley between what is Ashmont and Mattapan. Throughout the period of the 19th and early 20th century, that was actually a passenger railroad, and you could get from Mattapan to Neyland Street in downtown Boston in less than 25 minutes. Eventually, the MTA created what is the surface trolley. But Milton also had a network of streetcar systems, and they connected primarily, you know, Ashmont, along what is today the area of Brook Road. Um, There was actually Reedsdale Road, Pleasant Street, And this networking of systems would also have small waiting rooms. Well, a few years ago, I had this photographic postcard of a waiting room that was on Reedsdale Road. Today, it's a private residence. But I had an artist, uh, Joe McKendry, who's a very well-known Brookline artist, do a watercolor of it. And it showed it when it was basically a place that people could take the, the streetcar and wait there for the streetcar to either go to Ashmont into Boston or to Quincy and eventually on through a transfer system on the streetcar system. So you had both railroad and streetcars, but by the period of the 1930s and 1940s, that superseded with buses. So in some ways, Milton was very accessible, but it was still considered a suburb, a suburban area of the city of Boston. Anthony, we have Ralph and Rowley who wants to say hello. Hi, Ralph. Hi, Ralph. Uh, hello. Hi. Uh, there's, there's, I'd like to ask you about a, a family that are, uh, that's buried in Lindenwood Cemetery in Stoneham, and it's a huge family plot, and the uh, the headstone says Andy Hamilton Brown, Chief. But there's only two people buried in it. It's a it's a plot of like about thirty people, and uh, she supposedly donated some land at Plum Island, uh, many acres. You know, Ralph, I'm not. I'll ask Anthony if he knows anything, but I'm guessing no. It's not really what we're doing tonight, is it? No, I, the name's not familiar, but I'm not quite sure. Uh, was she from Milton originally, or? No, she was from Stoneham, I guess. Mm, not, but uh, not she donated uh, some land. It's, it's supposedly now a a national national seashore resident, Plum Island. Right. I'm not aware of it. I'm I'm sorry. Oh, thank you very much, Ralph. That up on Plum Island is he talking about the nature reserve that I the love nature to preserve go yes that's beautiful oh. beautiful Plum Island is really one of those unsung places and it's a great place to actually just take a walk I mean there are 
all sorts of things around the city. And this is the funny thing. Massachusetts has such a rich and ever-evolving history that it is only enhanced by all of us. I mean, we know bits and pieces of our local history. We know bits and pieces of Massachusetts history. But in some ways, I think we should start young. And one of the things I've been doing is developing a coloring book on Boston, and I want to do it in various languages, Vietnamese, uh, Spanish, uh, the different predominant languages of the city. But to do things that touch upon what we know bits and pieces of so that younger people, especially in the public school system, begin to realize, you know, La Belle Chocolatier, which is the trademark of the Baker Chocolate Company, or... Schraff's chocolate or something of that sort. These coloring books could be things that start off children just coloring. It's kind of it's genius, actually. I mean, you could probably get those books in every school in the school system. Exactly. And I think one of the things is you can have fun by coloring, but you can also then read the caption as to what it represents. And I think it's so important to realize sometimes that English is not always the first language one speaks at home. It actually can be the second language or the third language. Just because someone speaks a foreign language doesn't mean they're not not intelligent. Many of our immigrant base that are coming to Boston will only learn the history if we make it accessible to them as well. And I think one of the things is sometimes coloring, which I enjoyed as a child, though I almost failed kindergarten. Did you? You're just saying that, really. Well, no, true. Uh, I can remember to this day, and we were told to color the football jersey blue. I colored it, I guess, purple, because I'm colorblind. Uh I don't know if you knew I'm colorblind. Well, anyway, they realized at that point I was colorblind, and I almost failed kindergarten. So sad. (laughs) Were you sad? Did you cry? Not in the least. I just said point so blank. Instead of it lo- feeling blue, you feel purple. It looked pretty good to me. Okay. <laughs> well, there's a lot of architecture associated with notable folks, associated yes. with notable buildings right. in Milton that we didn't get to yet. We have a little time before the break to start on an- another notable building associated with a notable personage and business. Well, Associates Hall, which is a building which is right in Milton Village. It's a large building. It has not only Milton hardware, but it also has real estate agents as well as a beauty salon. Well, the building itself was designed by Roach and Tilden. It was built as a place that had a hall directly above, but it's one of the most interesting red brick buildings that emulates the Baker Chocolate Complex but today has survived and, as I mentioned, had these shops, but it also has the East Milton Post Office in it. So the building is a great example of something that's by one of the best-known architects that did many Back Bay Row houses, but he would actually design this because both of the architects, Roach and Tilden, both lived in Milton and contributed to the town. So in some ways, you had to realize that Roach and Tilden did that, but Hartwell and Tilden, which was the predecessor firm, would actually design the old Milton Town Hall, which has now been replaced by a much more modern structure. So George Tilden was extremely capable and extremely well-known, but his partnership with Arthur Roach, who came from an extremely wealthy family in Boston that kept a farm in Milton, were people that 
not only contributed to the fabric of Boston's architecture, but also Milton. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Anthony Samarco, talking history, talking Milton, and now we have a Norma Jean in Hanover who would like to speak to us. Hello. Norma Jean, let me click you, click you on here. There you go. Norma Jean. Uh, well, I, I've never called into this radio show before. I listen every night. <laughs> but um, I was born in Milton almost 80 years ago in the old Milton Hospital, and the talk about all the things in Milton has just been fascinating. Where did you grow up? In Milton. I know, but what street? Uh, right off Granite Avenue that goes into I was one house in. Uh, on Emerson Road. Oh, right. I know it. Yes. Well, the, yeah. old, the old Cunningham estate, which was developed in the 19th century for what became Milton Hospital, was started by Dr. Vassa Peirce. Now, Vassa Peirce was a son of S.S. Peirce, who actually started Samuel Stillman Pierce Company. But he was somebody in a lot of ways that had bought this enormous estate off of Pleasant Street and developed it into what was called the Milton Convalescent and Care Center. And in that instance, it was something that many people would look at the Milton Hospital as one of the highest regarded hospitals, you know, south of Boston. Yeah, I, I guess years ago, I mean, that's, that's where I was born in that old building. And uh, I have recollections of having my tonsils out in the building. I don't remember when I was born. And that was, then it was a convalescent home, and then um, they built the new Milton Hospital, and I had two daughters born out of that hospital. Wow. But one of the things that um, I always remember very fondly when you started talking about the Baker Chocolate Factory was the fact that when I was a small child, we would, um, I grew up in you know, East Milton, and uh, when I was a small child, and I believed that that river that runs through there was chocolate. It was, yes. I mean, the thing was, they called the Lower Mills Milton Village Chocolate Village because of so many of the Milton um, yeah, and Dorchester yeah. companies had produced chocolate. But they did actually, you know, look at it in some ways as a place that the aroma of chocolate was something that was really intoxicating. So did people tell kids <laughs> that the river was made of chocolate? Well, many times children did think that because all they did was yeah. smell the chocolate in the air. Uh, that's, what, that's what I thought, and it always looked kind of dark, like it could be chocolate. Obviously, at some point, it dawned on me that this was a river, it wasn't chocolate. But 
depending on when it's which way the wind was blowing at my home occasionally i could even smell the chocolate when i was out in my backyard yes and uh, i have a lot of fond remembers of remembrances of things like that and i knew tony guest personally oh did you oh who's uh, that Tony Guest was the man that would ride his horse over the Blue Hill to visit me. Yeah. I mean, he, he was, I presume he's passed away. He has, yes. Yeah. Uh, I knew him through horses and uh, the pony club that Milton met in Milton. Mm-hmm. My kids were in that and stuff like that. So it's just been kind of fun hearing you, you mentioned a lot of things that I wasn't even aware of in Milton because a year after high school, I ended up moving out. And never went back, you know, to yes. live there. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's it's been nice. kind of fun. I said, well, I've never called in to Jay's Bradley's line, listened a lot of nights, but just fell asleep. But this has kept me awake since he came on at midnight. <laughs> well, we're glad you called, and now yes. now you had fun, I hope, and you'll feel comfortable to call any time. Well, I, I don't mind calling. It's just like in the middle of the night, I'm so sleepy. I don't want to open my mouth. But. Well, that makes two of us. <laughs> that, that makes three. <laughs> Thank you very much, Norma Jean. But, you know, the funny thing is, uh, that is, it's each of these programs that we do are something that makes everyone react differently. And sometimes it's inclusive, and we remember certain things. A River Made of Chocolate. Well, I actually have that as a chapter in my Baker Chocolate book. Wow. I know. I call it, you know, that actually, and I'm surprised. But, you know, Milton, it not just has residential architecture, but, you know, one of the things is I was a trustee for many years and treasurer of the Milton Public Library. And though there's been a huge expansion over the last decade and, you know, creates a very high-service library for an ever-growing town— You know, that library was designed by Shepley, Rutan, and Coolidge. And when it was built in 1902, it was something that was really a major investment in the community. So in a lot of ways, you know, the building committee for the new library had people like by the names of Hollingsworth, Kidder, Apthorpe, Rogers, and and Tucker. And when it was built, it was something that was not just a local library, but it was something that had major artwork and a great collection of books, local research. And sometimes when I go back to do research and things of that sort, it's a very modern addition, um, I begin to realize in some ways, you know, that there's a continuity in the town. There's a sense of many people like Norma Jean that actually had been born and raised there but um, moved away, but still keep an affinity and a connection to the town. Any, uh, let's move on to another building of note that's associated with people and business, people mm-hmm. and or businesses of note. Well, how about the Blue Hill Observatory? Hey, I was just there the other day. Were you? I was there since your last visit. Well, you know, I used to walk, I lived right on Canton Avenue, and I used to walk up there, and I would actually, the views were incredible. But, you know, the Blue Hill Observatory was also designed by Roach and Tilden, the same architectural firm that did Associates Hall and Building. And when it was built by J.H. Burton Company, a very well-known builder, both in Dorchester, Mattapan, and Milton, it was something that created not just a weather observatory, but it was funded by Arthur Roach. Now, Arthur Roach, in a lot of ways, was a major person. He was a partner in the firm of Roach and Tilden, and he was a brother of Abbott Lawrence Roach. 
but following the death in 1912, Abbot Lawrence Roach bequeathed the observatory to Harvard University with an endowment that would continue his vision. But today, when we think of WGBH, we have to realize that that's actually W Great Blue Hill. Oh, my God. I love that. And, you know, a lot of times that's another Milton connection that many people don't always associate. But, you know, the observatory is something that just doesn't chronicle weather and wind velocity and things of that sort. It was important at the turn of the 20th century. It was totally novel, totally new. But today, many times they'll say, oh, you know, top of Blue Hill, the wind is, you know, 50 miles per hour. It's a fascinating glimpse. So there's this, as you know, stone structure. That's what you're talking about. There's another place over beside it where all these towers are, but the old stone structure. Yes. You walk up the stairs to an observatory with a nice castle-like tower. Yes, exactly. And, And when I was there, maybe two weeks ago, I wondered who built it and when they built it. Roach and Tilden. It's a funny thing because when I did walks, and I used to think in some ways these walking tours were things that would be sponsored by the Friends of the Blue Hills. Uh, Peter Jeffries actually is somebody who would coordinate some of these things. I was always fascinated. These trails would go off into the hills, and you'd begin to realize in some ways that this was only nine miles to downtown Boston. And it was something that was so rural and so removed from urbane society that you could almost immerse yourself in pine trees and walks and, you know, magnificent views. Well, I did get immersed. I went with my friend Andrew. And we got lost. Wow. We had a map. and There were little markings on the trees, but somehow it didn't seem like they were lining up with on the map. So we got deliciously lost, and we ended up, walking seven miles in there. Well, where we lived, if you continued on the driveway, it would eventually go into the Blue Hills. We were only about uh, an eighth of a mile to the edge of the Blue Hill. There were days when many walkers would come down not knowing where they were, (laughs) asking for water. And there were other days I would look out my kitchen window and there would be an elk or a deer and... uh, a wife deer and a baby deer all looking in my kitchen window. And there were other years we lost every holly bush we ever had because they they were starving. So I think sometimes, you know, you have this aspect of still a rural aspect to a community, whereas many people will say Milton, they'll think of East Milton like Norma. But this area was so rural that it was something that maintained itself even into the 21st century. Tank in Boston, who uh, was with me, worked a long time with me at WBCN, is on the phone with Anthony. Hi, Tank. Hey, Bradley. How are you? Good. Say hi to your buddy, Anthony. How are you? This, I'm well, Mr. Samarco. I, God, you are so entertaining. Um, when I first drove cab, I drove cab in Milton, and they gave us this little booklet of little informational facts. And one of them was about the... Uh, uh, G.H. Bent Company? Yes. Bent Biscuit? Bent Cracker. Yeah, yeah and, and uh, I, they started in like 1801. I know. Isn't that interesting? You know, Bent yeah. Cracker started what was basically a water cracker. 
And, you know, crackers at that time were things that simply were rolled out and then pricked with a fork. And they baked and they had a shelf life. So they usually marketed them towards primarily the boats. So the sailors or, you know, whomever was on a boat could actually eat them now or two months from now and there was no adverse effect. Well, G.H. Benton Company, which is on Pleasant Street, right off of um, what is Randolph Avenue, is still in existence. I I know it's recently been sold and it's going to be reopening. But I used to love to go there because a friend of ours, she's deceased now, Jeanette Peverly, who was a lovely, lovely woman, when she would come sometimes for a clam chowder, she would actually ask me to get the bent crackers and we would soak them in water and then bake them so they fluffed up like these little puffs. And that was how people enjoyed them. But Bent Crackers also made cookies. And on Saturday mornings, you could get a pound of broken cookies for like $2. (laughs) (laughs) I like that idea. I did too, actually, because it was something in a lot of ways that, you know, these were sugar cookies. They were the most wonderful things. I didn't care if they were broken. But I used to think in a lot of ways Ben Crackers was something that was integral with Milton, and it was part of the industries of the 19th century. Jack, you used to be a baker. Was that near Milton? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, uh, right down the street, uh, Dorchester Ave, uh, after high school, uh, or actually during high school, I worked at a place called uh, Katrina's Bakery, and it was right there uh, uh, in Lower Mills, across from the Liberty Delicatessent. I remember uh, it. Do you? I, I do. You think, oh, you know, the other thing I want to know, when I would drive cab out there, I would see the license plate number one. Yes. Now, did that person live, was he at the, or whoever, at the corner of, of uh, Canton Ave and Randolph Ave, possibly? Well, he lived on Randolph Avenue, just a little bit past that, but the thing was, that was Dr. Tudor. And Dr. Tudor was a well-known physician in Milton, and of course, number one was owned by the descendants of Tudor, the Ice King. <laughs> yeah, because I used to go like, wow, that's the license plate number one. Who the hell has that? I believe it was number 51 Randolph Avenue, and the house is still there. It's owned by a woman that I know for many years that owns the uh, Nutshell, which is a children's store in East Milton. And one of the things is, Dr. Tudor was a physician at Milton Hospital, very well respected. Um, His father had lived in retirement, partly on Beacon Hill, but partly in Sandwich. So license plate number one was something that was not just a cachet, but it was truly the first license plate. So when Francis Lee Higginson began to actually control the registry of motor vehicles through the licensing of automobiles, um, he gave his nephew, Frederick Tudor, number one. So the family still has it, though the car is parked, I believe, in Chicago now. But but he had a son, Frederick, and a daughter, Mary Tudor. When I was working down at Katrina's, we one time got uh, an order to go up to um, uh, this huge house right on uh, Adams Street. And uh, they said that it was owned by uh, Gamble, uh, from Procter and Gamble. Well, there were many families that were connected, you know, to these various institutions, yes. Wow. 
Uh, the other thing is, have you ever thought about doing a book, or have you done it already, about uh, Chestnut Hill? I've not. And one of the things is I try to keep everything I do to Boston itself. And Chestnut Hill will be fascinating. But one of the things is, you know, I've committed to doing a new book called The Through Time Book with Font Hill Media in London, which will be of every neighborhood of the city of Boston. I think that'll probably keep me busy for the next 15 years. I'm doing a book on East Boston through time, and I'm also beginning research right now on Dorchester and Roxbury through time. Well, it'd be great if you could, because the uh, Olmstead, his yes. place is right around the corner from, oh. from from where I live. Exactly. It's a beautiful I, estate, and the oh. archive is incredible. But Olmstead, oh, okay. Frederick Law Olmstead, and then the successor firm of Olmstead, Olmstead, and Elliot, and Elliot lived in Milton, who was also the son of the president of Harvard, were important <laughs> landscape architects. And today people don't realize that Blue Hills Parkway, which connects Mattapan with Canton Avenue, was laid out by Olmsted, Olmsted, and Elliot. Well, didn't they do um, uh, Central Park in New York? Frederick Law Olmsted did. Olmsted. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, again, thank you very much. Thank your knowledge you. is incredible, and, and your entertainment level is even above that. Wow, thank you. Thank Take you, Jack. Appreciate Take care, Bradley. Yes, and stay well. Well, there you go. That's pretty interesting. It is, and it's nice when people actually say such things because, you know, in a lot of ways... I look at these things as something that's secondary in nature to me. I love it. I love history. I kind of absorb the facts. I hope I actually transmit them into something that is interesting. But I think in a lot of ways these books are things that do preserve the written word in such a way that not just we, but our children and our grandchildren will be able to just pick up that book and not read it from cover to cover, but look at a picture, look at a caption, and then maybe go one step further and maybe read something else on local history. Boston, its surrounding communities, it's a rich and ever-evolving history, and I I really do enjoy it. So you're going to have a book coming out including every Boston neighborhood in one book? No, it'll be individual Another series. Another series. So I've already done Back Bay Through Time, and I've also done um, Brighton and Alston Through Time. Okay, that series. I'm hoping that Peter Kingman will continue with me. He is right now doing research on East Boston through time. I just have to lay the book out. I'm apologizing that my taxes are still not done. (laughs) I get worried because I think in some ways it's just, you know, I have such a busy life during the business day and then, of course, evenings teaching and lecturing. So um, it will be a whole new series. and. Hopefully, it'll be one on every single neighborhood of the city. You are so busy that when you have a day off, you you so it's disturbing, right? You don't know what well, to do. It is kind of fun. I mean, I if I'm on the Cape, I I go out and I feed the chickens, or I wander around looking right now at Dutch bulbs forcing themselves up into the air, or I wander around the village because the Austerville Village Library, of which I did a book about two years ago on its history is a great place and it has a fireplace and I sit there and I might read the newspaper or read a book, but there aren't many days that I'm not already lined up. And my calendar is just incredible. The calendar is something that I live by. 
And it's a sad situation in a lot of ways because I look at it daily and I'm like, where am I supposed to be at such and such a time or where am I this evening? But this evening, April 10th, I will be at the Boston Public Library and the Commonwealth Salon and it'll be on the history of Brighton and Alston through time. Next Tuesday, I'm at Manchester-by-the-Sea for the Manchester-by-the-Sea Historical Society talking about Jordan Marsh. So it's at the chapel of the First Parish Church at 7 p.m. Beautiful. Well, that's perfect timing. Thank you very much and all the best to you. Hope this, this next month brings you many uh, rewarding days and maybe many warm and pleasant, nice spring days as well. I hope so, too, you, and you, too. Thanks. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.